The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, the design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. I don't know if you can hear me. Is it okay? Um, last time I played that, and I had just the words up, and a lot of people have told me over the past few weeks that uh, they wanted to see some of what I did around the nation this uh, past summer, and so a lot of those were taken on the road, and some of them were just of my life in the past uh, you know, year, baptizing some friends and uh, doing some things like that. So I thought I'd play that for you. And I wanted to thank Seth for being sick today. And there's a reason why, you know, I, I'm sorry he's sick, I had it a few weeks ago and it was really difficult, but today is the one year anniversary from the time I was ordained at Grace Baptist Church. So, thank you. It just happened to work out that way, praise the Lord, and uh, actually it was the 24th, so this is the final day of that year, so it's been one year since I was ordained, and um, so I thought I'd share that with you. Um, while we were doing the Christmas lights one evening, it was a little bit late, and uh, just as we were about to start the lights up, and one of the people in the congregation went to Seth while I was standing there, and he said, would you please put the quotes that you quote during a sermon up on the uh, screen so that we can see them? And I thought about that, and I thought that's a really great idea, and then I thought after it, and I, I'm saying this so that he knows why I'm not doing that. Um, there's a few reasons that I thought that I wouldn't do that. The first is that I am bound to skip over something, you know, if time doesn't permit it or if it doesn't seem to fit the flow of what I'm saying, then I'll skip over it. And then secondly, every sermon at Grace, regardless of who does it, is recorded. So you can buy a CD or you can buy an, a DVD and they're not expensive. And uh, so you can go back and review that. And then thirdly, I have no problem at all personally with emailing my notes of any sermon. I know some pastors don't like to do that. They like to guard their things. Uh, to me, it doesn't make any difference. If somebody wants my notes for anything I do, my life's an open book. It came from the Lord's Word, and it belongs to Him. So just email me, and I'll send you the notes and the quotes and everything else. Um, so I just thought I'd get that out of the way, just so you knew why I'm not putting the quotes up here. Today's text verse, uh, the subject of the sermon is the mind of God. That was the first thing that was mentioned up there. The Bible contains the mind of God. And as I said last time when I spoke that I wanted to do one of each of the 41 precepts that are mentioned there. But the first time I did a uh, sermon on the significance of the entire Bible. Uh, and that was a big, 
bite to chew, and obviously I, I couldn't cover very much of the Bible. Today, I can chew very much less. I mean, the mind of God is infinite. So I'm going to give you what I feel is what the Bible tells us about the mind of God so that you can understand that. And the text verse for today is 1 Corinthians 2.16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So there's, there's a clue right there that if you have the mind of Christ, then you can look more carefully into the mind of God. One more thing I'd like to say before I get started is that my wife couldn't come today. I was told at 3.26 yesterday, we need you to preach today. And so I, uh, she didn't have time to ask work uh, to get the day off. And so I want to thank my friend Kelly sitting over there who came and she held my hand. I went to school with her and she kind of called me down this morning and prayed with me. So I very much appreciate that and I wanted to acknowledge that. And she, the last time that I did a sermon, because she doesn't attend this church, says, you know, people are pretty pretty calm around here. She comes from a little more charismatic background. And I said, listen, if you hear something, and this applies to all of you, if you hear something that you like, shout amen. This is the Lord that we are worshiping, and he is worthy of every single bit of whatever you want to give. If you say amen, give an amen. If you want to raise your hands during a song, do it. All right? Thank you. Before I get started into the actual sermon, I want to do something, and I hope you don't think this is goofy. There's a purpose why I'm asking you to do this. It's not hypnotism or anything. It's so that you understand your own mind before we speak about the mind of God. So I'd like everybody in here to just close your eyes and clear your mind. And I don't want you to open your eyes again until I say, okay, now open your eyes. Because I may stop for a second and you think, oh, I've got to open my eyes. Please don't do that. Just clear your mind, and I'm going to ask you to do a few things. I want you to imagine a waterfall in the South Pacific. You look to the left and there's a sunset with orange and pink clouds. Right now you're on US 41. You see an accident up ahead and people being loaded onto an ambulance. All right, you see somebody petting a chihuahua that survived the accident. Now you see a cinder block. I just want you to picture a cinder block. Now you see a pile of cinder blocks. Now you're in Japan and you're looking at Mount Fuji. You see it snow-capped and a little bit of smoke coming out of it. it. really is beautiful. Now you're in space and you're flying by stars and galaxies. I want you to picture that in your head. Now you see Captain Kirk passing by you in the Starship Enterprise. He waves and he shoots by. His ship is faster than yours. Now you're standing with King Arthur on Baden Hill and you're facing a large Saxon army. They're all wearing shields of armor, ready to go into battle. Now imagine you're standing with David in the valley of Elah in Israel, and on the other side is Goliath. And you see David whip a sling, and a stone goes right by you and hits Goliath in the forehead. Can you see that? Now imagine you're in Norway in a field of tulips, every color you can imagine. And you see windmills in the distance. One of them isn't turning, the rest are. Now you're sitting at Thanksgiving dinner with your family. And you see a ham on the table with glazing on it and pineapple. Okay, some of you don't like ham, so now it's a turkey. You see a turkey there. All right. Now I want you to completely clear your mind again. And I want you to picture God. Okay, go ahead and open your eyes. 
with your mind, your brain, which weighs only three pounds, you've imagined things, that, some things you've never seen, some things that have never existed, some things that never will exist. You've gone back in time. You've gone out into outer space. And I do this sometimes. I'll lay in bed when I can't sleep or I've got things going on in my mind, and I'll sit there and imagine things, thing after thing after thing. And it just shows me the splendor of the mind that God has given us. It really is amazing. But when I asked you to picture God, I think that 99% of you saw nothing at all. Now, if you saw something, you've made a category mistake. God is spirit. We cannot see God. So if you saw something, you need to get your theology corrected. Okay? The Salk Institute spent 10 years mapping the 300 neurons in the nervous system of a roundworm. It took them 10 years to map this. And right now, Harvard scientists are mapping the human brain. There are over 1 billion neurons. It took them 10 years to hook over 300 neurons. There are 1 billion neurons in the human brain. And there are over 1 quadrillion synapses. That means that there's one with 15 zeros behind it, synapses in the human brain. The Harvard scientists have said that your mind, the human brain, is the most complex structure in the entire universe. In fact, it's more complex than the structure of the universe itself. And I bring that up specifically because somebody in my class recently said, well, my brain, I just don't think that way, and I, I, I don't have a really good mind. And I said, your mind is exceptional, and God has made you exceptional. The girl that got shot in the back of the head a couple weeks ago, her brain is already working around that bullet wound. And she's able to move her body and think, and, and she's going to be speaking soon. That's how exceptional you are, and you are unlimited in your potential. And I'm talking about a three-pound organism. Imagine the mind of God. Every single thing that you just imagined, you imagine from your own viewpoint. When I said you see a pile of cinder blocks, some of you maybe saw a pile of old broken cinder blocks, or maybe one of you saw you know, nicely stacked up pallet ready to be used, or weeds growing up through it, or whatever. Everybody here saw something differently, and God knows every single thought of every person in this audience, and every thought of every person that ever did exist and ever will exist, and he knows every atom of every star in every virus cell in every body that could or may not become an infection. And he knows everything immediately and intuitively. There's nothing he doesn't know. So to speak on the mind of God takes thought and it takes care. The Bible contains the mind of God. That's not to say that everything about God is contained in the Bible. We don't want to make that error. Only the things that God has chosen to reveal to us about himself are recorded in the Bible. And this is also not a statement on the Bible. As I said before, the Bible doesn't contain the Word of God, and it doesn't become the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. So remember it like this. The mind of God is revealed in the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. All right? The mind of God, there are types of revelation. Revelation is simply God revealing himself to us. How does God do that? There are two types of revelation, and we'll talk about them in just a second. But before I do, I want you to contrast these two verses. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you have John 1.1. 1, 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What's the difference between those two verses? The first one is something that we can know without God telling us. We can know that God created and that there is a God. Einstein proved that there was a time when time didn't exist. Everything started, and we have time, space, and matter, all a continuum, the issue from one point. So we know that there was a beginning. If there's a beginning, there must be a beginner, and people throughout history have figured this out. All right? But not until Genesis 1-2 do we get something that we wouldn't otherwise know. It says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's a Spirit of God? We didn't know that. We didn't know how God created. It was formless and void. We didn't know any of those things unless God specifically told it to us. Likewise, in John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word. What Word? Well, we find out later, down in John 1-14. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is God. We wouldn't have known that otherwise. So we have these two different ways of being able to tell things about God. The first one is known as general revelation. God generally revealing himself to us. This is the universe and all it contains. Every person, every tree, every star, all of these things reveal to us God in a general way. It reveals God as creator. Every society on earth can say, yes, there's a creator. Now, they may get it wrong. They may say, well, that tree is there because of, you know, this God or that God or whatever. But they know that that tree is there for a reason. It didn't just pop into existence all by itself. Okay? So, it provides generalities. It reveals God as creator, and it is applicable to society, all society on earth. It is sufficient for and a means of condemnation. That means that we stand condemned by viewing God from a general sense. We know that there's a disconnect and we don't know what it is. Every society on earth knows this, and that's why they go through sacrifices, or that's why they do certain rituals, is because they know that there's something wrong and they're trying to reach back to this God that they cannot fully understand. Paul confirms this in the book of Romans. First, Chapter 20 of verse, for since the creation of the world's world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. We get busy, we turn our back on God, maybe we're into some type of perversion and we don't want to acknowledge God because now all of a sudden we have to acknowledge that we're doing something that offends him. Whatever the reason is, we are condemned because of general revelation. It's just the way it is. The Bible proclaims it, and that's where we stand with it. Now, when we produce something, people can tell things about us. When Beethoven or Bach write a symphony, we can tell things about them without ever seeing them, without knowing where they came from or where they lived. Anything about them specifically, we can tell something about them generally. When Henry Ford builds cars, we can tell something about Henry Ford. I built my dinner table. If nobody knew anything about me and they went in and they saw my dinner table, they would know certain things about me that they wouldn't otherwise be able to tell. We eat on the floor in my house. My table's about that high. All right, they can tell something, something's a little strange about Charlie, maybe. I don't know. But you can tell things about people. Salvador Dali, he makes paintings and they're a little bizarre. So we can kind of get a general feeling about Salvador Dali because of his paintings. Bill Gates, whatever. Likewise, from creation, we can tell things about God and how he has revealed himself to us. A tree shows that God is, 
repairing. We have all kinds of trees. We've got good smelling trees that we can put inside of uh, a cabinet and make it smell good. We've got hardwoods for building certain things. We've got pretty grains that we can, you know, make beautiful things out of. We have fruit trees. I mean, we've got every kind of fruit tree you can imagine. Instead of God just giving us one fruit tree, he gives us delightful fruit of every kind. I mean, nummy, nummy stuff. And we can tell things about God because of that. Compassion between two people does the same thing. God created people. People are compassionate. Therefore, God must be compassionate. We can tell that. It's that simple. Love does the same thing. Ice. Ice floats. Did you know that if ice didn't float, there couldn't be any life on earth? God is a God of order. He's a God of intelligence. The ammonia cycle, the nitrogen cycle. I uh, was in wastewater for 20-some years, and it's a very complicated cycle, and yet we can use it in a simple way to take wastewater and make it from bad water back into good water. Here you start with NH4 ammonia. We use organisms, and it goes into NO2 nitrite and then NO3 nitrate, and then we use a different type of organism, and that organism is, uh, it doesn't use air. It actually eats the air molecule off of the NO3 nitrate, and what's left is N, nitrogen, and off into the atmosphere it goes. And so we don't pollute our world because of it. And this is happening in the natural cycle as well, all over the world. So we can tell things about God by studying his works. There is a second type of revelation. This is the other category. It's called special revelation. Unlike general revelation, which provides generalities, special revelation provides specifics. God is our redeemer. He's our rock. He's our hiding place. He's our safe refuge. He's our Lord of lords, our king of kings, our prince of peace. Whatever you want to call him from the Bible. We wouldn't know that unless he revealed it to us. Okay? Applicable to the church. Just as general revelation is applicable to society, special revelation is applicable to the people of God. At one time, it was the people of Israel. They received God's revelation, and then the Messiah came, and he founded his church. And from that time, the apostles have written. And so we can tell... Excuse me. We can tell things about God because of his special revelation. All of these things are revealed to us. It is sufficient for, just as general revelation is sufficient for and a means of condemnation, special revelation is sufficient for and a means of salvation. And I say it in that way because it is sufficient to save us, and it is a means of saving us, but it doesn't mean that we are saved by special revelation. We have to receive the special revelation and accept it. There are people that read the Bible all the time that don't believe it. We've got colleges all over America that are full of people that know their Bible, and they don't believe it. It is sufficient for and a means of salvation. Now, just as we can specifically tell things about ourselves so that other people know us in a specific way, God does that as well. Remember, God creates something we can tell something generally about him. I make a table and people can tell something generally about me. But if I want to specifically reveal myself to somebody, then I'm going to go onto Facebook and I'm going to say 25 things about Charlie Garrett. And I'm going to say, you know, I'm 46 years old. I, uh, I have a beard. Sometimes I forget to shave in the morning. I have a wife and two children. Uh, I'm super duper handsome. Whatever. And now people can specifically tell things about me that they otherwise would not know. And it's the same thing with God. All right? Now suppose I post a picture of myself on Facebook. Now they know what I look like. We have 
an image of Charlie that other people can appreciate, or not appreciate, whatever. Um, but suppose I make a schedule of events. Now people can tell things about me. Charlie is pretty ambitious. He says he's going to do this, 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 and this, and this, and this with his life. All right? And then I write a diary, and I say I did this and this and this. And people say, well, he's not really reliable because he only did these things and he didn't do all those other things. Or they can say, gee, he really had his priorities straight because he did these five things and he forgot all the trivial stuff, whatever. People can tell things about me because I'm specifically revealing myself in this way. Now, suppose when I die, somebody writes an obituary about me and it tells something even more about me that I never revealed to myself. And my family says, this is what Charlie was like. I hope it's a good one, all right? Likewise, God will specifically reveal things about himself to us in specific ways. He gives us a schedule of events. He writes in his word, he says, I'm going to do these things, okay? And then he writes a diary. Some of it is in his word. The rest of it is in human history. He says, I am going to bring the people of Israel back to their land, and I'm going to plant them there, and they will never be uprooted again. Well, he promised that he'd do all these other things, and they all came to pass. Then I can trust that what he says about Israel will be true as well. And this is God. He's fulfilling his schedule of events in his diary, which is the Bible, and also which is human history. There's even an obituary in the Bible. Somebody died in the making of the Bible. And we learn things about God from that obituary. And then even more, we learn that the obituary was not the end of that person, that he came back to life. And in that obituary, and in that coming back to life, is another promise. I'm going to give you eternal life as well, if you trust in what this person did. Is it reliable? Has what is said in the Bible come to pass? And if it has, then we have a sure foundation on the other things that have not yet come to pass. It's my great hope. I don't know about you all, but it is my great hope that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. And I trust every single promise that he has given. The mind of God, types of special revelation. We've got the types of revelation, general, and special, and now we have types of special revelation. The first is God working through a prophet. This is a person who proclaims the word of God. Now, he proclaims other things. You know, I'm hungry. Well, that's not God's word. But there is a quality instilled in a prophet, just as we have qualities instilled in us that we cannot resist. I get hungry, and I must eat, or I'm going to die. I get thirsty, and I must drink, or I'm going to die. The Bible says that prophets have a similar quality that is instilled in them above and beyond the qualities that we have naturally. As God says to uh, Amos, God said to Amos, A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? God is saying to him, you're going to speak my words, and you have no choice in the matter. And what does Jeremiah say? He confirms what God said to Amos. Jeremiah himself says, But if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. It's a quality that is instilled in him that he can no more with 
stand without dying than you needing food or drink. Paul says the same thing in the New Testament. If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And that's the way I feel sometimes. I feel like I just have to tell people about Jesus or I'm going to explode. And I'm not claiming to be a prophet, but God has instilled in each of us certain desires. And we need to follow through with those desires. Second type of special revelation. God working through nature or suspending nature to produce a specific effect. We call it a miracle. The parting of the Red Sea. All right? What was the purpose of it? It was the redemption of the Israelites out of Egypt. I will redeem my people. I'll give them their own land. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to come back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So God used nature, a strong east wind, to part the waters. Now, is a strong east wind a miracle? No. Is water parting always a miracle? No. I live right down by Turtle Beach. When a cold front comes through, the the wind comes from the north and eventually it swings around to the east and it pushes all of the water out into the gulf. And you could, this morning, here's the water parting and there's a sandbar right off my house. And you could actually walk all the way across Sarasota Bay without getting any deeper than this except for where they dredge the intercoastal waterway. That's not a miracle. The miracle is that these people were hemmed in on all sides And God says, I am going to deliver you. And he did it just as he promised. Now understand, where they were standing was a place called Pihahiroth. It means the mouth of the gorges. They're standing on a beachhead. There's a gorge on either side, this giant mountain face. And it runs out this way. Behind them is the Egyptian army. In front of them is an impassable body of water. And they have nowhere to go. These people have spears and chariots. They don't. There's 603,550 of them, plus women, plus children, plus all of their goods. Everything is piled up, and they have nowhere to go. And God says, stand back and see the salvation of the Lord. And he parts the waters, and the people walk through the water. And then as miraculous as that, as everybody gets through on dry ground, and the water closes in on the Egyptians. He destroyed the enemies of God to affect his purposes in human history. That is a miracle. There are other waters that are parted in the Bible. The parting of the waters in the Genesis account, where God set the waters above and the waters below. Right? That is part of God's special revelation. The world was a certain way at a certain time so that we could live in an idyllic environment. Later, that was destroyed at the flood. But that's a parting of the waters for God's purposes. We have another body of water that is parted in the Old Testament. Anybody shout out, what is it? What body of water was parted in the Old Testament? The what? The Jordan River. Give this person a, a prize. All right, now I've got another question for you. How many times was the Jordan River parted in the Old Testament? I'll give you a hint. Anybody? Three times. All right. Each time was God specifically doing something for a specific reason so that we could understand him or his prophet or what he was doing in redemptive history. I'll give you one of the examples. I'm going to give you all of the verses so that you can go home and read them. The first one is in Joshua 3. The next one is in 2 Kings 2. One of them is in verse 8, and one of them is in verse 14 of 2 Kings 2. But those are the three times that the Jordan was parted. 
The first one, it says, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I am with you also. God was establishing Joshua as the new leader of Israel. And in order to demonstrate that he had the authority that Moses once had, he parted the waters. He told the Levites that were the priests that were carrying the tabernacle, or the, yeah, the uh, Ark of the Covenant, he said, go step into the Jordan, and as soon as you step in, the waters will be stopped. And sure enough, this is at the flood stage during the springtime. If you've been to Israel, you know how fast the Jordan rushes through, and at springtime, it's even faster, right? So they step into the water, and the water stops. And then he allows all of these people, a million-plus people, to go through, and he says, now come up out of the water, and the priests walk out, and the Jordan returns to flood stage. So this is God suspending nature to produce a specific effect. I want to give you another example in the same vein. This is another type of miracle that some people don't like to hear about, but there's a reason why he did it, kind of like the Egyptians drowning. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. David had been dead about 400 years. That's how much he loved this man of God. And when it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. God said that I'm going to defend the city against this massive Assyrian army, and they're not even going to shoot an arrow in here. And liberal theologians over the years have tried to diminish this by saying, well, it was a plague of rats. You might watch this on the History Channel and say, well, they, you know, it was a plague of rats that killed these people. You know, personally, I don't care how the angel of the Lord did it. It doesn't make any difference. He could have used a strong east wind to part the, uh, the Red Sea. Well, he could have used rats to kill the people. The angel of the Lord did it however he did it. Their speculation doesn't diminish the fact that these people were destroyed. And if you'll notice one thing about this account, is people never try to challenge and say this account didn't happen. Anybody that says an account in the Bible didn't happen is a fool. Because history has again and again and again and again validated the accounts in the Bible. Guess what? In the British Museum, there is something called the Taylor Prism. And it was written by Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And he goes into great detail explaining all of the cities that he conquered in Israel and in Egypt and all around in his campaigns. He details the number of people that he took captive. He details the booty he took, all of these things. And guess what it says about this account in the Taylor Prism? It says, as for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city, Jerusalem. I then constructed a series of fortresses around him and did not allow anyone to come out of the city gates. Now, if he had destroyed Jerusalem, or if he had taken one single person captive, it would have been recorded right there on the Taylor Prism. All it says is I had him like a caged bird. God protected the people of God for his sovereign purposes. And he destroyed 185,000 human lives that came against his sovereign purposes. Whether you like it or not, that is how God works. And you can say anything you want about the wrathful God of the Old Testament, but he is the merciful God of the Old Testament. 200 years earlier, he sent a man named Jonah 
son of Amittai, up to Nineveh, where the Assyrians come from. And Jonah said, repent, because in 40 days, the Lord is going to destroy Nineveh. And if you've read the story, it only takes you a couple minutes to read it. It says that the people repented. The king himself stepped down from his throne, and the people put on sack- even put on sackcloth on the animals in mourning for their sin. And you want to know something else about this? Once again, extra-biblical history records that Nineveh, for a short time, turned to monotheism. And then they turned away from it, and they got back into their same sinful and idolatrous practices. They left the Lord that had saved them from destruction, and they were destroyed. King Sennacherib of Assyria went back up to Nineveh, and his own two children killed him. This is what happens in human history. We do these things to ourselves. We were talking about this in Sunday school this morning. We do these things to ourselves. America is right now turning from monotheism, and not just monotheism, but Christianity into all kinds of non-appropriate religions. There is one God, and he has revealed himself to us specifically. He's not a God of convoluted thinking where it's okay to do this in this religion and okay to do this in this religion. He's a holy God. And he has revealed himself to us in one specific way and given one way to be reconciled to him. So we need to be careful that we pray for this nation and we pray that it turns back to the true God or we are going to be the same as the Assyrians, swept away. Okay? I'm sorry, I'm a little unprepared. I was told at 3.26 yesterday to come out here and do this, so I have to keep looking at my notes. But here's a third way that God has revealed himself to us. Specifically, you have the prophets, you've got miracles, and then you have God uniting with human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. I would call that special revelation par excellence. On the side of my truck, you'll see this verse. Go take a picture of it, hang it on your refrigerator, and memorize it. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is special revelation like no other. But there is one more type of special revelation, and it is God speaking to us through the pages of the Holy Bible. This is a different category than all the others. And you can say, well, wait a minute, Charlie. The prophets are mentioned in the Bible. The miracles are mentioned in the Bible, and Jesus Christ is mentioned in the Bible. But here's why it's a different category. It's a different category because not all the words of the prophets are written in the Bible. Many, 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 many times throughout the Bible, it says this prophet said this, and it doesn't record what he said. All right, here's a classic example. It says, Now Uriah, the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim, was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord. He prophesied the same things against the city and this land as Jeremiah did. Now, do we have in the Bible a book of Uriah? No. So we need to have the Bible to record exactly what God wants for us the redeemed of the Lord, and not just what he was doing at a specific time in history. It's also a different category because, because God's special effects, his miracles, need to be recorded and for the, for the people after them to be edified. The people that were brought through the Red Sea are edified. They say, oh, this, there's a God. He did this thing for us. But we wouldn't know anything about it unless it's recorded in there. And the Bible does speak of other miracles 
that aren't specifically recorded in the Bible. We're not edified by those, all right? And then after the Bible was sealed, we still have miracles occurring in human history. And I'm not one to believe in all kinds of goofy miracles. Don't get me wrong there. I don't believe that Benny Hinn goes and heals people. But I do believe in the power of prayer. And I believe that most of the people that have been in Christianity a long time have actually seen people prayed for that have cancer in a hospital. And then the doctor comes out a week later and he says, we can find no trace of this cancer at all in this person's body and we cannot explain it. That is a miracle, and it's not recorded in the Bible. So we need to have the Bible to tell us those specific things that God is trying to tell us so that we can understand him in a full and complete way. And it's also a different category because we cannot know the Son specifically unless we have a testament of his work. All right? We cannot know the Father without knowing the Son. And without the Holy Bible and knowing the Son, then we don't have anything. And so it's very important. What is the one thing that I tell my Sunday school class week after week after week? The thing I post on Facebook day after day after day. The thing that I told people to do when I left to go around America last year is to read your Bible. And the reason why is because if I stand up here and I give you Mormon theology and I say, this is what God is like and it is not correct, now you have a faulty picture of Jesus. And if you have a faulty picture of Jesus, you have a faulty picture of God. And you're back to general revelation. You no longer have salvation because you have a faulty God. Remember when you closed your eyes at the beginning of this and I said, picture God? If you have a faulty picture of Jesus, then everything about the God that you're trying to strain and see is wrong. The Bible says in Colossians 1 that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the one that reveals to us God the Father that we cannot otherwise see. Do you understand that? That is so important that you understand that Jesus is the one that reveals the Father. So we have to get Jesus right. Don't believe your Sunday school teacher. Don't believe your pastor. When they speak, go home and check what they say because it's that important. Your salvation depends on it. And if not, as I said, you're back to general revelation. The divide exists and there's no way to bridge it. As Jesus said in John 14, 7, if you really knew me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do, do know him and have seen him. And then Paul says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Okay? So I'm preaching to you falsely. I'm giving you an improper sermon with a, a bad view of Jesus, and you have that bad view of God, and you, faith comes by hearing. You've heard wrong. Hearing by the word of God. You need to go back to the Word of God, or you're stuck hearing wrong, and you've got a faulty Jesus. Do you see the logic there? I hope you do. So please read your Bibles. It is the most important thing that you can do as a Christian or as somebody that is ready to tell people about Jesus, having Jesus right. The mind of God displayed in the works of God. This is my next major category. O Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are also very deep. As I said earlier, God knows everything immediately and intuitively. If God thinks, then that means there's a change in God. God doesn't think. He knows everything. Any change in God would not be the God that we are dealing with. So he knows everything immediately and intuitively, and he makes everything for our benefit. 
So I'm going to back up to general revelation for a minute, and I'm going to tell you one discipline of all of the sciences that are out there, a little bit about one discipline, so that you can understand the mind of God. Johannes Kepler said, science is thinking God's thoughts after him. So in pursuing the sciences, we pursue the knowledge of the creator that made those things. Okay? Quasars. I'm going to talk to you about astronomy. Quasars are these luminescent bodies that are out, way, way out in the distant universe. They are 100 times brighter than our entire galaxy. They're tens of thousands of times brighter than our sun. And they're out there, way, way out there, and they're flashing their light, and they're telling us things about God and about how he did it, letting us know that he's here and he really exists. And then he made something called pulsars, kind of like quasars, except instead of light, they're emitting a beacon. And they're pulsing, beep, 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 way, way out there in the middle of nowhere. And we can tell things about the mind of God by studying pulsars. And you got neutron stars. You start out with this big star like our sun, and it collapses in on itself, and it becomes about 20 miles wide. You could drive from here to Bradenton and pass up the distance of a neutron star. But if you were to take one little piece the size of a sugar cube of a neutron star, it would weigh over 100 million tons on planet Earth. Now, those things are pretty nifty, if you ask me. But I'll tell you what is more nifty to me, and I think this all the time. We can sit right here on planet Earth without ever leaving a chair, and we can weigh a neutron star. That's what amazes me, that we can tell how bright a quasar is, and we can tell things about what God did when he created a pulsar. That amazes me. We can sit on planet Earth and never leave our chair, and we can weigh the entire universe. We know how much matter exists in this universe. And we're on a little dusty part of an outer ring of a galaxy in billions and billions and billions of galaxies. That astonishes me that with three pounds of brain, we can do those things. And you know what it does more to me? It astonishes me how unbelievable is the mind of God. There are two ways of looking at the mind of God. I have a boss, an old boss that I have breakfast with quite often. And he went and he wanted to study theology at one time and he was, you know, uh, uh, turned away from that early in life. And we sit there and we have these talks and he gets into astronomy. He's one of these guys that names planets and he helps find things that are out there so that they can map everything. And he says, you know what, Charlie? I just cannot believe that there is one God that could have done all of these things. And that's his right. He can feel that way. But when I look out there, I take just the opposite view, and I told him this. I said, when I look out there, I cannot believe the splendor and majesty of the God that did this. It astonishes me. I'll tell you one more thing about the astronomy, because it touches me so much, and then I'll move on. When I was in Montana this past summer, my wife came out to be with me. I was there a couple weeks, and I had a really great time with a friend. Thank you, Ed. And... Uh, my wife arrived really late at night. It was 11.30 in Helena, Montana, so I had to drive 50 miles to go pick her up. And on the way back, Helena now, this is a giant city, 30,000 people, right? I'm leaving Helena, and I'm going to Deer Lodge, Montana, 3,000 people. And in between there, this 50-mile spread, our 
are two towns of 30 people each. And it is so dark and so beautiful. And I pulled over on the side of the road and I said, Hidako, I have to show you something. I turned off the car and I got out and I walked around and I opened the door for her and helped her out because you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And she said, what? And I said, Hidako, look up. And in her cute little Japanese way, here's exactly what she said. Oh, never seen so beautiful. It was astonishing to see the stars in Montana. I've lived in Asia. I've been all over Southeast Asia. I've been in the Pacific and in the South Pacific. I've been to Israel today, Florida, all over the 50 states, and I've never seen anything like the stars in Montana. And when I saw them, I had to think of the promise that God gave to Abraham. Listen to what he said. Look now toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. The man of faith believed God and he was counted righteous because of it at a time when he was an old man and had no children. And that's what I thought of when I was standing out there when there was not a single electric light on planet Earth. The land of Canaan is dry and arid, and imagine how clear that sky was. And he believed God. And that's what God asks you to do, is to believe what he tells you is true. Here's what Isaac Newton, the greatest, the greatest scientist in all of human history, voted year after year after year by the big council of scientists, it's almost a given. Every year they're going to say it's Isaac Newton. Here's what he said. The most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent being. All variety of created objects which represent order and life in the universe could only happen by the willful reasoning of its original creator, whom I call the Lord God. Did you know that Isaac Newton wrote much, much, much more on theology than he did on science? And he's the greatest scientist that ever lived. He was, not, he was no fool. He looked out at the stars and said, how magnificent is the creator. As it says in the Psalms, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. And that brings me to my next point. How do we apply the mind of God to our lives? I've got four points that you can think about how to apply the mind of God to your life. Praising God. That's the first thing that we should do every single day is praise God. And as we walk along life's highway and we see a beautiful tree and we smell a wonderful flower, we should praise God. And when we see something that's magnificent, give him praise all day long. You drive down the road and you see something really nifty, a beautiful cloud, praise him. That is how you apply the mind of God to your life. By returning to him, praise for the thing that he has given you. As it says in the Psalms, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Praise God. The second way is to study his works. Johannes Kepler, science is thinking God's thoughts after him. And his word, learn about his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. Study his works. This is how we can apply the mind of God to our lives. I'll tell you right now, it's real unfortunate that the Christians have given up on the scientific disciplines and we've handed them over to the secular world. 
because now everything is being analyzed from a non-godly viewpoint. And we are reaping the benefits of that negligence in our schools, in our homes, and in our lives. Instead of applying the mind of God as Christians, we're letting other people do it that couldn't care diddly about God. So please keep that in mind. And as I said, not only studying his works, but also study his word. As it says in the Psalms again, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Study his works and study his word. Apply the mind of God to your own life. And then there's a third way that we can apply the mind of God to our life. Speaking out about him. Tell of his glory. Man, that is the most exciting thing in the world to me. And I hope that it will be to you, is telling people about Jesus. I mean, I can't get enough of it. Take my Bible to the bank and I'll set it down in front of the teller, hoping that she'll ask about it. I'll take it into the restaurant and I'll set it down there, hoping that the waitress will ask about it. And sometimes if they don't, I just butt right in there and start, can I tell you about Jesus? Tell of his glory. He redeemed us out of slavery, out of sin. Tell of his glory. As it says again in the Psalms, I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, of yours only. O God, you have taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. Tell about his glory. And there's a fourth way to apply the mind of God to our lives. Fulfill your calling. This is honoring his glory. As Moses said in the oldest psalm in the Bible, the 90th psalm, And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. If you are a plumber, lay the pipe to the glory of God. If you're an electrician, don't get electrocuted. If you're a preacher, then get up and preach. If you're a minister, then serve well. And if you're being called to be a missionary, There's no time like today to say, I want to get started. Whatever you do, if you shuffle paper, you can do it to the glory of God. In the first two chapters of the Bible, in Genesis, man was created to work. And if we're created to work, and God created us for that purpose, then obviously we can glorify God with the work that he created us to do. Whatever it is. So recognize his glory in all of these ways and apply it to your life. The mind of God is revealed to us in a way that we have all the information we need to know about him. He's given us life, he's revealed his heart, and now we need to apply it to our lives by praising him, by studying his creation and his word, and speaking out about him, and finally, by fulfilling our calling in life. General Revelation gave us birds and trees and bumblebees gave us children and little puppies. General revelation, it gave us the earth and the sky. But special revelation gave us Jesus. And for us, Jesus did die. And that brings me to my fifth point. The mind of God displayed in the love of God. Now I could speak on any of the attributes of God. His love, his holiness, his justice, his mercy, his grace, his truth. But just as Jared was honored to speak on the love of God recently, 
I'd like to also. I'll take one verse, and I'll break it down. I'll try to do it quickly, and I hope that you will learn something. This is from something I wrote about five years ago I had published. And I want to show you the love of God displayed in one verse of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Greg, if you could, I'd like you to come up here and sit here. I want you to do something for me. Would you do that? For God, the creator, the source, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. He's all-powerful, he's all-present, and he's all-knowing. For God so loved, this is an act beyond all of creation, beyond all of comprehension. When God created the universe, the Bible says that the angels shouted for joy. They sang for joy. Imagine what they thought when they saw Christ hanging on the cross. For God so loved the world. In Greek, the word is cosmos. It can mean arrangement, beauty, or order. But in this specific context, it means the people of the world. The people of the world who have so shamefully turned around, placed their back to God, and gone and done all the things that they want to do without acknowledging him, without applying the mind of God to their own life. For God so loved the world that he, the creator, the all-sufficient one, for God so loved the world that he gave. Come here, Greg. Would you do something for me? I'm going to show you in an object lesson what grace is. I want you to go down one of these five rows. If you go to the left, I want you to hand it to the right. If you go to the right, I want you to hand it to the left. And if you go down the middle, you pick. Go down seven pews and then hand it to the third person in on whatever one you choose. Whoops. Now, while he's doing that, I'm going to tell you about a gift. A gift has value based on who the giver is. The reason why I had Greg do that is because I didn't want anybody to think that I was picking somebody. Grace has value based on who the giver is. Now, in a couple years, they're gonna, somebody will walk by and say, oh, gee, where'd you get that? And they're going to say, oh, some hippie down in Sarasota, Florida gave that to me. <laughs> but if it came from Billy Graham, they would say, this came from Billy Graham. Or if it came from Ronald Reagan, they said, the President of the United States gave this to me, and they'd be really happy about that. So it has value based on who the giver is. It has value based on its value to the giver. If it's valuable to me, then it has more value. If it's something that causes me, you know, remorse, I guess I should say, because, you know, I really wish I didn't give that away, then it has more value. If it's just something that didn't mean anything to me, I find something dumpster diving, which I do all the time, and I give it to somebody, it doesn't mean anything, right? It has value based on its uniqueness. If what is in that bag came from Walmart, and it's some cheesy little thing stamped out in Wang Chung, China, one of a billion of them, it doesn't mean anything. It may mean a little bit because it tastes good or it's shiny or whatever, but ultimately it really doesn't mean anything because everybody else in America has got the same stupid thing on their mantelpiece, right? And finally, it has value based on its ability to affect a positive change in the receiver. If the person receiving that is changed by it, if they're really happy about it, or if it can do something for their life that is positive, then it has more value. If it doesn't change them in any way, then it really didn't have any value, right? Now, I want you to think about those four tenets while I go on. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his. This is belonging to the creator alone. You talk about value. It comes from the creator of the entire universe. The one who created your child. For God so loved the world that he gave his only. We talked about unique. Not only does it belong to God, but it is one and only one of a kind. It is absolutely unique. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. I'd like everybody to go home and read Genesis 1. Genesis 1 tells us things about what we're talking about in John 3.16. Apple trees beget apple trees. Cows beget cows. Man begets man. God begets God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, before I go on to son, I want to tell you something about that last word, begotten. Make sure that when you quote this verse, you use the term begotten. Some Bibles say his only son. Some say his one and only son. Those are not incorrect translations, but they are incorrect applications. In the book of Exodus, chapter 4, verse 22, it says, Israel is my firstborn son. There are no contradictions in the Bible. Jesus is not God's one and only son. He is his only begotten. And that is very important. Throughout the Bible, the second always replaces the first. Isaac replaces Ishmael. Jacob replaces Esau. David replaces Saul. Jesus replaces Israel in a specific context. Jesus replaces Adam in a specific context. So understand that when you quote this verse, it's very important that you get that particular word right. He is the only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is the eternal divine son of the father. Isaiah calls him El Gibor, the mighty God. And he goes down a couple more verses and he says, Unto us, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. In that one verse is Christ's manhood and his deity. Unto us a child is born. He's a man. Unto us a son is given. He's God. That's really, really amazing to me to think about that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, every person in here is entitled to write their name in that word. Every person on earth is entitled to write their name in that word, Charlie. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that Charlie. It doesn't mean that it's automatic. You have to choose to put your name where that word is. But you can put your word there, your name there, if you'd like. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes, this is an act of faith alone. No works are required, none. The law is set aside in Christ, and when it's done, it's done. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, in the son, in what he did on the cross of Calvary. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. This means never to be condemned for the sins committed in the body. You are called by God's Holy Spirit, and you are adopted as a son of God the moment you make this choice. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That means to be walking on streets of gold, clear as glass, every tear wiped away by a loving creator. And it's yours if you accept it. This is what God offers in the love of God. The mind of God displayed in the love of God. After Christ died on the cross, just as he was dying, the Bible records in Matthew 27, 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And at that moment, the veil of the temple was rent. Access to God was restored. That veil that had hung there from eternity past, from the time that Adam sinned, was torn open. And we now can get back to God the Father because of what he did. The veil was torn, the bridge was rebuilt, that chasm of general revelation was crossed. It's there and it's available to every single person if they just simply believe. Just as Abraham believed, all those stars would number as his children. That's what God asks of us. In 1907, I'm sorry, 1917, a guy named Frederick Lehman wrote a song called The Love of God. Man, do I love it. And he got his idea for the, the, the tune, The Love of God, from of four stanzas that were written on the wall of an insane asylum. They were written by a guy named Meyer Ben Yitzhak Necharoy. It's based on a Jewish poem called Hadamut. And in that poem it says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would rain dry, or could a squirrel contain the whole that stretched from sky to sky? That is the love of God displayed in our lives. Infinite love, because he sees his Christ dying on the cross for us. So I'd like everybody to just take a moment and close your eyes and bow their head. And let's worship God. Let's praise him. And if anybody here has never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, if they want that love in their life that he offers, just follow along with me. Heavenly Father, I have sinned. I have transgressed your commandments. I want to be made right with you. And I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and what he did on the cross of Calvary. Anybody here has called on Jesus today, I'd like to pray for you. If you have, raise your hand and let me know. Let me know that Christ has changed your life and you're willing to live for him. And for the rest of you, I hope that you will remember to apply the mind of God to your life every single day of your life. Praise him. Praise the glory of the Lord for what he has done in your life. And he will do in your life if you are the redeemed of the Lord. You will walk on streets of gold with him. That's a promise that is as certain as this thing that I'm holding on to is real. He is coming again. So have faith and have that joy in your heart that only comes from Jesus Christ.